On episode 31 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss the importance of pure math to the average software developer, the importance of status reports, SQL parameterization, and pulling yourself out of a programming slump. Now with one more turkey than usual from IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. Hey, Jeff. I got... Guess what that is? Sounds like a chicken. Close. I'll play it again. I have no idea. Oh, man, you really are um, off of the whole, like, work calendar schedule with everybody else. Oh, turkey. Okay. It's a turkey. All right. <laughs> I'm going to play that a few times during the episode. That's great. The special, the special Thanksgiving edition of Stack Overflow, Stack Overflow episode 31. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you okay. Why? Did you change something? Yeah, I had to change everything. You know why? Why? Well, I've got um, two. I needed to upgrade my hard drive, and I've got two of these audio preamp thingamajiggies. Uh, plugged into USB ports, and so I unplugged all my USB cables, upgraded the hard drive, and then plugged them all back in. But I guess I plugged them into different plugs than they'd been plugged in before. Oh, yeah. I love that feature of USB. Maybe that's a Windows implementation. I, I don't know. I don't know if the yeah. Mac does that or not. But, yeah, if you plug something into a different USB port, it's like it has to discover it again. It's like, ooh, new device. You're like, no, it's not really a new device. <laughs> no. I'm pretty sure it's a part of the USB spec that a, a, every port is... Or maybe if it can't identify the device uniquely for some reason, it just hopes that, you know, if you have two of the same thing, yeah, and they don't have a serial number that it can get over USB. Oh, I see. It, can, it, it can't tell. It just goes by the position. So anyway, so, so they were all wrongly configured. And I had to, like, tear everything apart in this whole gigantic configuration with all these mixers and stuff like that. Right. And I rebuilt it up. And for some reason, you know how usually when you take apart, like, an engine and you put it back together, there's, like, a kind of critical-looking bolt <laughs> You're left holding. <laughs> I, I've never actually taken an, anything of that complexity apart, but I, I know the feeling. <laughs> um, well, I had the opposite problem. I had to use an extra preamp to make it work. Again. <laughs> you had to add parts. For, with, with, with four mixer preamp thingamajiggies. Yes. And to get it to work again, I now have five. Wow. But uh, anyway, for some reason, and, and the recording is different. It records you on a different track than it records me. Which Ooh. is the way it was intended to work? Yes. Then I can like either I can either cut you out or um, even better I'm going to take everything that you say and I'm going to move it like a, a half a second forward in time. You can so move it. it like you can move it up an octave. That would be funny. <laughs> <laughs> so you're talking to Mickey Mouse. That'd be great. I'm gonna. You know, there. I have a button here to do that. I just don't know how to use it. I, can, you know, I, I, I think I literally could do that right now. <laughs> I think the Mickey Mouse tone would be would be appropriate. Uh, people were very unhappy with last week's discussion of uh, NP-complete, and, and I blame me, mostly. 
Oh, it's my fault too. Well, you're not totally blameless, you but I think uh, <laughs> I, I'm a very unsophisticated, so I think I owe people an apology for that. Uh, but I want to clarify, too, because some comments came up in the podcast notes that were actually, A, funny, and B, correct. And one that I particularly enjoyed was, learning about NP completeness from Jeff is like learning about irony from Alanis Morissette. And awesome. I saw that you responded to that with a video, which I then watched, about the some Irish comedian doing a whole bit about Alanis Morissette and irony. Yeah, I can whatever year that was. God, that was a long time ago now. Well, uh, who is that? Uh, who is that? Who is that guy? Uh, I don't know. You have to look it up. But it was a funny bit. I'll link it in the show notes for sure. Uh, uh, there's there's some truth to that. And then somebody else had a comment of, it was like, wow, Jeff doesn't really know math, and that that really is true. And and I've been very open about that because I don't know if you remember this meme that went around. I'm sure you didn't do it, but a lot of people did. It was like five things you didn't know about me. Do you remember that? It's Ed. It's Ed Byrne. I do remember five things you didn't know about me. That was like years ago. It was one of those early, back when they actually had bloggers. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. It's like two, maybe two years ago. But eventually I, I got roped into it. And one of the things I put in the five things you didn't know about me was that I'm, I'm really bad at math, like historically. And, and, and this, is, this shows up on standardized testing. Uh, mm. Like, uh, for the weird. There was a while I was thinking about going to graduate school, so I took the GRE, and, and this is the first time I had taken a standardized test, one of those, you know, things you so scores, and people decide if they want you to come to your school or not, and I was like, oh, I better study for this thing, right? I want to look good, I want to do as, as good as I can. So it was one of the very few tests I studied for, not because I'm trying to show off, but because, you know, normally I'm very lazy and I don't even bother really studying. <laughs> but I take about 100 points off of your standardized scores if you don't study at all. Yeah, I don't think I studied for like the SAT or I don't know, but I really studied for this one. Like I got the little practice book and everything. And so even with studying, so so the weird thing about my score was that uh, verbally it was like off the charts. I mean, I'm not trying to exaggerate, but like I think I missed like three on the entire test. So it was like 99.999 was like ridiculous. But on the math side, it was like 77th percentile, which I think is kind of mediocre. That's, that's <laughs> that, really weird. I don't think I don't think I've ever met anybody. That doesn't have an 800 on their math SATs. Really? Well, now you have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess I must. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so that's sort of a weakness that I have is I truly like I don't – math doesn't really come easy to me. Like I don't look at problems. And I remember like in high school – we had a really good high school calculus teacher actually who I enjoyed tremendously. He's very entertaining. But like I could only really solve problems that I had seen before. Like I didn't really get – the process of which you by logic, logic and induction, you take one set of mathematical principles and figure out all these other problems, which is kind of what MP completeness is about, right? You have some core mathematical concepts. Don't, 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 don't. Sorry, sorry. No, that's not what it's about at all. <laughs> go, please go there. to www.wikipedia.com and look up. <laughs> but in, in a very broad sense, yeah. in a very broad sense. And, and, and to be fair to me, like you didn't back me up either. Like You had a blog post, you had a paragraph about <laughs> what I wrote about incompleteness. And for I tell you, for a business partner, I felt like somebody – you stabbed me in the back a little. You didn't really have my back on that one. <laughs> yeah, but you're the one with all the blog posts about how bug tracking doesn't exist. <laughs> There's no such thing as a bug. And... <laughs> I see. So, so it was, I, I, it was feel like, it, uh, I feel like uh, we were equal even there on that yes. one. Yes, it was like a little bit of a revenge thing. That's fine. Uh, but to be fair, like I don't, and I, I'm going to do a little bit of a follow-up, not necessarily all about incomplete, but some related topics. And I felt like the definition of incomplete wasn't really the point of that post. The point was that yeah. the workarounds for incomplete problems are really interesting, and that's what well, the focus of the post was about. 
And that would have been that would have been really interesting if anybody had talked about that. But computer programmers are are uh, geez, so literal minded. Well, no, 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 I, and I think that's fair. I mean, what I said was kind of incorrect. They have right, to be literal minded, but they, but but really, like the the main, it is true that there are classes of problems that seem like they should be hard, but they really aren't. So, for example, uh, you know, we talked. I don't know if we talked about this this time. The halting problem. Uh, the, you know, the way the halting problem is defined is, you know, I can construct a program magically such that your program that determines if a program will halt uh, cannot work. And it's sort of a clever little program. But that doesn't mean that there aren't programs that you could analyze and discover that they do halt, but they don't halt. Ooh, you, you know, know I got a good one for you on the halting problem. Or it's, it's sort of like a, actually Girdle's proof. Oh, boy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to torture you with math. The, rest. So the thing about Girdle's proof is Girdle's incompleteness theorem. Oh, never mind. Yeah, we probably don't want to go too far down this because I think we're gonna make we're gonna piss people off, and I think rightfully so. But one thing that that was funny, <clears throat> very funny, somebody posted the halting problem on getacoder dot com because yeah, I had it's been going a lot today. Everybody did is, you see that? Yeah, that was awesome. It, it zoomed to the top of all the sites. Yes, it was it was printed by Ellen T. <laughs> E.G. Ellen Turing, and you have all these, <laughs> these companies bidding on solving the halting problem. Oh, we can totally do this. Give it, Our team can totally knock this one out in like two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if nothing else good came of this, at least humor. Humor was delivered. <laughs> but I did want to apologize a little bit on my, my lack of math skills, which are true. It, it is true. I mean, that, that criticism. It's, that's kind of weird. I don't know a lot of programmers that, that I mean, usually there's a, lot, a pretty high correlation between wanting to be a programmer or being good at, you know, programming kind of stuff. Even computers in general. I saw it as, uh, you know, that's yeah. probably true. But I always saw it was more of logic than math. And it always frustrated me places where. So I guess. Maybe, it, just, maybe you just don't like uh, the kind of math that they teach in American high schools. I mean, maybe you would like discrete math or set theory and that kind of stuff. The stuff that's like real, really interesting math. I, I think historically the problem has been that I just didn't really have couldn't really grok it at some fundamental level. Like I could do it, like you could show me a problem and I could solve that problem, but I couldn't really extrapolate that to anywhere interesting at all. There's and a I, real yeah. There's a real problem that happens with math is that is that the stuff that you learn in the standard American curriculum, um, geometry, trigonometry, calculus, algebra, uh, and it's you know algebra, you know it's like pre-algebra really. It's not algebra, algebra it is um, all kind of. Um, stupid and irritating and the stuff that you learn once you get past calculus in 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 graduate school or in, or or in a with an undergraduate degree in mathematics is actually easier more interesting and just kind of more interesting and more more useful sometimes more applicable and there's stuff like uh let's say you know elementary statistics and probability that's a part of math uh or um set theory that kind of stuff discrete uh discrete math linear algebra that is never really taught to kids. And I think if there was, they would find it easier than, say, like linear algebra is easier than calculus. And it actually solves classes of problems, like optimization problems, um, that are kind of cool. So why don't they teach that to high school kids? Why don't they teach them calculus? I have no idea. I mean, we had some calculus in high school. But then, of course, you went to college, and it's a whole different uh, ball game there. We had uh, this field trip in high school where we were going to visit a local company and see, you know, what sort of things they were actually doing. And our guide was this really cool guy who had gone to MIT, right? And, then, you know, you're a college-bound high school student, so you're really interested in the whole concept of going college and then getting out of college and, you know, using what you've learned on the job. Mm -hmm. And at one point I asked him, I said, okay, so of all the stuff you learned at MIT, what do you use in your job? And he 
and this is a thoughtful guy, right? This isn't, you know, a, a doofus or anything. And he stopped for a minute and thought, and he's like, you know, I don't think I've really used anything directly <laughs> that I've learned at MIT on my job. Mm-hmm. And that really sort of opened my eyes about the purpose of education. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know. I mean, you learn a lot of stuff that's not directly applicable to what you do, yet it's valuable for background. It's kind of like the whole learning C thing you talk about all the time. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. That, that's the analog. But I wonder, on the topic of math, like, with my self-admitted weakness in math, it's like, when does that really come up in practical programming? I mean, I use logic all the time, but pure math? I mean, unless, I don't know. Like, um, have you, can you think of examples of places where you've used it? Yeah, the, the uh, well, uh, the, that I've used it or that it's been used in the history of? <laughs> well, because, I mean, the Google, someone, the Google PageRank algorithm is definitely, um, the, the, the actual way that they compute PageRank is something that, you know, mathematicians would recognize. Yeah, but it's not like the super complicated formula, right? I mean, that's not even, is that even calculus? I don't know what it is. It's, it's uh, gee, linear algebra? It's something that you would learn in a, in, a, in a class in linear algebra. Yeah, I mean, like, I did the hotness, you know, calculation on Stack Overflow, but that's a really simple Well, that's formula. just a formula, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, yeah, that's just a formula. That's not even... But see, the thing about PageRank is they have to be able to tell you, they have to be able to assign a page rank to every website in the absence of knowing any page ranks to begin with. You have to be able to like look at this whole mass. Because remember, page rank, you get your page rank from the page rank of the sites that point to you. Mm-hmm. And so that leaves page rank undefined, right? And so it, it's this big, big old circular thing. I see. Yeah, so, the, the original, they do actually, actually the original, solve a bazillion equations simultaneously. Uh, um, the original Google paper on PageRank is yeah. really cool. Like, even today, it's still very relevant. It predicts really, a lot of things. There's really a couple of things about Google with PageRank. One is that, 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 that way of calculating it, which is the kind of thing that is sort of trivial to anybody that's taken a couple of courses. I mean, you, you probably have to take linear algebra to get a CS degree in, in most good schools these days, and, and uh, or maybe not, but you, a, a lot of good schools will require you to take linear algebra to get a computer science degree. And um, so it's just, you know, it's just a part of the standard tool set. And it was combined with the whole idea of using citations to determine how authoritative something is, which uh, actually comes from uh, – is often used in academia where they publish these – you know, they sort of rank different professors' uh, authoritativeness based on how often they're used in footnotes. Like there are these books you can buy that, are, that will show you, you know, a list of a 1,000 professors of neurophysiology and tell you which ones are referenced in footnotes the most often – and that'll mean that their ideas are presumably the most influential. And anybody that had ever seen one of these citation indexes would say, oh, this is kind of interesting. I wonder if we could use this. And it's almost certainly where the Google guys got their idea. So they definitely took two uh, academic ideas. And then, and then MapReduce, of course, is something from, I mean, it's from Lisp and parallelization, but it's the kind of thing that just about everybody in computer science would be aware of and not that many working programmers necessarily are aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, so they really did pull, pull together sort of academic ideas that weren't being used yet. And, uh, um, but that's, that's kind of rare, actually. That's kind of rare. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of any sort of hard, what I consider difficult math I've used in programming. It's, it's super, super rare for me. Uh, but I continue, the, the Google PageRank paper is great. I mean, it's, it has a timeless quality. Maybe that's what makes it all mathematical. But I, I really enjoyed reading through it. I was surprised. Because it's kind of old now. It's been out for, mm-hmm. gosh, I don't know, six, seven, eight years. And it predicts a lot of really interesting things that have kind of come true. Because we live in a Google world, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but I do recommend anyone that's interested in, in PageRank, definitely read that paper. I think you'd be surprised. 
um, some of the stuff that's in it. Do we have any questions this week? Oh, we got heaps of questions. Do you want to just jump into one of those? Sure. Um, oh, no, that's a turkey. Oh, that's a turkey. Yeah. <sighs> what kind of questions do you want to take? I got, I got like eight. What, what, any kind of category? Um, no, you pick. Usually you have a pretty good ear for what's a good question, I think. Um, Go with your want- heart. Go okay. with your heart, Joel. Uh, oh. oh. Only one copy of Audacity may be running at a time. I wasn't sure if that was like another joke. <laughs> I can never be sure with you. You know why, why? Why? Why can only one copy of Audacity be running at a time? Hi, Jeff and Joel. I wanted to ask you a question about how much time you think programmers should be spending in Photoshop. I, I don't really know why. That's uh, Mike uh, Ackers. Um, uh, there have been a couple of times in my career where. I've done some small things, you know, I've, I've, I've been working on something and I just needed a small piece of artwork to go, you know, in a particular spot, like a gradient to fill a background of a button or something like that. And when I showed it to my boss, my boss would freak out at me because is this supposedly like I'm not supposed to be doing graphics. This is the job of some graphic designer elsewhere on the team who I may not even know. And, you know, my explanation is it's it's better if I just did it myself because I know exactly what I want and it took me you know, five, ten minutes to do. But for some reason, it kind of messes with my manager's idea of separation of responsibility or something like that. So I wanted to get your thoughts on what, how, much, how much of this kind of stuff do you think a programmer should be doing? Should they be doing a lot? Should they be doing a little? Is it a case-by-case thing? You know, and, um, and also, what was my manager thinking to, to make him react this way? Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, you know who that sounded like? Have you ever seen that video on YouTube, You Suck at Photoshop? I have. That guy, Donnie. Somehow that really, really sounded yeah, I like don't him. Know. I don't know his voice. I don't know. But to answer the question, I actually have written a blog post sort of about this. And then I, I don't think you have to be a graphic designer per se. What I, what I think is important is that you have to be you don't want to take on too many external dependencies. You know, if, you, if you're at some point in the code where you just need some filler graphic, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be awesome, right? It just has to be good enough so that people will look at it and go, okay, that's what you're trying to do versus look at it and going, that makes no sense at all to me. I have no idea what's on your screen. I got to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in order to, to move forward with your work, you have to have what I consider a minimum level of competency with just a graphical editor, right? Like, like Photoshop or GIMP or Mm-hmm. paint shop or whatever it is you use i'm not saying you need to be a graphic designer and then the other thing that i would say about that is you you need to be relatively good at copying things right like you know there's that famous bon mot what is it you know g- good programmers write and great programmers steal well i think that applies triply to design <laughs> no seriously it does like if you if you're trying yeah. to design something just go copy the crap out of something that you like that's good Right. I mean, don't sell it commercially and be a jerk who steals other people's stuff. But if you're just working through something internally or just trying to mock something up, just okay, copy. I'm glad you added that caveat. Yeah, just copy the crap out of something uh, to start with, and then add your own tweaks over time. Obviously, I mean, there's a, sort of a more of an end game here, but that would be my recommendation. And I'm I'm a big believer in the uh, the multi talented programmer. Like, I don't kind of really like working with those programmers who once they reach the edge of a discipline like oh that's as far as i go they just stand on the abyss and look over up oh, i can't possibly create a gradient because that's that's designer work and i'm not a designer uh, well, or that's guy, database guy work and i'm not a database guy so i can't do that i just get very frustrated with people like that 
Um, I'm, I'm totally with you. And, and especially, you know, when you're just like, if you're starting a little company, you kind of have to wear many hats and you probably, you may have to do the first design iterations on your website. But I was sort of reading behind the lines here and between the lines here. So this guy really said, why, why, what he was asking is, why did my manager make me yell at me for doing my own work in Photoshop? And there's sort of two interesting questions. There's like the surface level, which is, uh, well, I don't know. Maybe the graphic designer is better than you are at designing things graphically. Or maybe the graphic designer is paid less than you are and their time is cheap. But the second level is like, why are you asking us what your manager was thinking? I mean, <laughs> we don't know. What, why, what, what, what kind of a dysfunctional place are you working when your manager yells at you for making images in Photoshop and then you go find some guys on the internet and ask them to read your manager's mind and say, what could, what could my manager have meant by that? Um, I don't know. You're, sounds, taking, uh, you're taking it awfully literally. I mean, I think he's just asking about, you know, what sort of disciplines a programmer should know. Is it, is it, un, is it reasonable to, to take a program and say, all you do is programming? You're in this little cubicle. Yeah. Your veal fattening pen, your code fattening pen, and output is code. Anything other than code comes out of there, you get a beating. It's like, I think sometimes, I, you know, people are, are, not, are not necessarily aware that the designs that they're doing in Photoshop are ugly. They may not get why, they, what, why, why what the graphic designer does is so much nicer than what they do. Uh, well, or, I think, or not. Well, it may be the opposite. Well, that's fair. And I wouldn't expect a programmer to necessarily have good taste. And God knows that right. you know, my taste isn't necessarily the best. But I don't know. I think you should be good at stealing stuff. I think stealing stuff is a really important skill as a programmer. So somebody who can't figure out what a good design is to steal, mm-hmm. I'm already thinking, hmm, if they can't figure out what a good design is to steal, can they really figure out good code to steal? <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's a, such a, a basic fundamental skill as a programmer. You know, never write what you can steal. And if you can't sort of figure that out on a design basis, then I don't know. It's really suspicious to me. So, but I mean, maybe there's no transference. I don't know. That's just a gut feeling. Here's another uh, uh, real short question. Hello, I'm David from the UK. I was wondering if you could talk about how you handle status reports at Fog Creek to stay up to date with what your development teams are doing. Thanks. Um, status. Status reports. Status, um, yes, we have we have a variety of, of state stateful status status reports. Um, the uh, the main thing is a thing that we call the weekly kiwi, which is just a a wiki page where on Friday before everybody goes home, they write up a summary of what they did that week that they want everybody else to know about. And there's no requirement that you do anything. And sometimes people just put a little funny cartoon there. And sometimes people actually talk about what they did that week and what they hope to do the next week. And um, and so on. And that's the, that's the main thing. The only requirement I have is that people that are in charge of a project uh, have to tell me um, where, where that project stands and whether it's still going to be when, – when it's going to ship. I mean, I've never really gotten anybody to do this exactly. But what I really want to see is Fogbug 7 was scheduled to ship on such and such a date at the beginning of the week. And at the end of the week, we think it's going to ship at such and such a date. And therefore, that is a slip of <laughs> – Five days, which is pretty much what it always is every week, and uh, and uh, um, and that's that's kind of what I want. That's that's kind of what I want to see. But 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 you know, and there's there's a little bit more detail in there. Uh, Joel, ask me, ask me, ask me for my report. Go ahead, just ask me. Humor when, me. when is, is Stack Overflows? Uh, new? Six to eight weeks. Six to eight weeks. Six to that's eight weeks. <laughs> six to eight weeks. That's the rough. Yeah. No, because then I was then I would come back every week and I'd be like five to seven, four to six, <laughs> three to five. <laughs> You didn't realize that the number always stays the same, so you don't you don't get it. No, I was I was it. shortening it. I was shortening it on you, and and at one point I was like, so it's zero to two hundred 
two weeks? <laughs> like, no, six to eight. Still well, six to eight. Let, let me, I'm joking, obviously, but let me ask. So yeah. I like the idea of um, one theme that I'm seeing here that I like that I hear about sometimes is is when you create status reports that are sort of not really meant to judge people, but meant as like just a, a public wall so that other people who are maybe interested in what you're doing or curious what the company as a whole is doing mm-hmm. could look at this, right? Is, is that what I'm hearing? Uh, mostly. And it's also just to sort of give me a feeling that there's motion going on even when, because otherwise every week or two I'll go over there and I'll be like, what the friggin' frick are you guys right. doing? Right. Well, no, that's great because I think what makes this work and what makes it good is that when you start using status reports as a bludgeon to beat people, like, you know, oh, give me your status report and you better show progress. Otherwise, you know, mm-hmm. you're not going to get a bonus or whatever. That's when it gets weird because then just people just start writing status reports to make themselves look good. They don't really write what's really happening or what they're thinking. They write what they think will get them a bonus at the end of the year or yeah. whatever or, or a, a, avoid a beating <laughs> from their manager. And I, I love the idea – and I've seen this expressed before in, 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 in various sort of quality uh, reference sites for programmers. It's like treated as like a status wall where everybody just, you know, it, they just judge it for whatever they judge it. It's not necessarily used for anything. But I think there's a, a competitive – maybe competitiveness is not the right word. But you want to sort of show off to your peers and say, wow, look at the cool stuff I'm working on, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's sort of a positive place for this to come from versus I want to avoid A, a beating, and C, I want to get – my bonus at the end of the year. Yeah. So I, I think that's really smart. And I actually, when I worked in my previous job, one of the things they eventually instituted was like a weekly stand-up meeting where people would just talk about what they were doing. It was very informal, but I, I'm not going to say that came from me, but I was one of the people that asked for that because I really didn't know what was going on at the company. Once you get to like 20, 30 people, and how many people are at Fog Creek now, Joel? Uh, 20, 30. It's actually almost 30. Yeah, it's like yeah. it's hard to even tell what's happening. Like it's hard to even know what people are really doing or working on, and and you you're invested there, you work there, and you're really curious about it. So, just from a you know curiosity perspective, if nothing else, uh, from your coworkers, it's nice to hear that stuff. There's another thing we did. Oh, by the way, I should point out the co-pilot team, which is just four guys, four sorry, four guys and three guys and a gal, three. <laughs> it's four people on the co-pilot team, and uh, they uh, they instituted stand up daily daily stand up status meetings amongst themselves. Um, yeah. And that was sort of a, a reaction to uh, – there's a, there's a blog post about that you can find on the Copilot um, blog. Uh, in the last few days, they, somebody, one of them wrote up, wrote up a little interesting blog post about it. But that was sort of a reaction to one of the developers kind of got off track and spent six weeks in a Moby Dick-like effort to solve a bug that, if you had thought about it for five seconds, was code that you didn't have to write. Like, there was another way to do this. Mm-hmm. And he was – like really, really deep trying to, <laughs> you know, the metaphor is like you're trying to you're trying to get a splinter out of your finger or something, and you basically just gouged and gouged, and you know it's still in there, and you're just gouging away the skin, and the muscle is starting to, and your fingers oh, all bloody. That's disgusting. All right, I get it. <laughs> Six weeks, and eventually you're like, you know, I'm gonna use lose the use use of my hand here. <laughs> Better just live with the splinter, and then. Um, it was sort of that kind of thing, and then, uh, um, in perspective, he suddenly, you know, talked to some people, and we said, "Wait, why are you even doing? Why, why do you need to do it this way? Do it that way, and then you won't have this bug because you'll be using completely different code." And he said, "Oh, yeah, that works too." And it was kind of a um, uh, in, in order to prevent that, 
kind of uh, obsessive compulsive like going in one particular direction where any reasonable person if you just talk to them a little bit would tell you wait stop there's an easier way uh, they instituted these quick very very quick daily stand-up meetings uh, for their team so that's another kind of a status report and the third thing uh, we, we have is uh, we have a uh, um, uh, like a company chat room kind of Twitter thing it's not Twitter mm-hmm. it's something called Laconica is that what it's called it's like a yeah, Laconica. It's it's like an open source version of Twitter that you can download and install on your own internal server, so it's all secret. And um, and and then we have uh, people run something like Twirl on their desktops, and it's sort of like this company chat room where you can just sort of put some status in there. But there, bizarrely enough, there was kind of a splitting. The original goal of that is it was a neat place to announce anything new that you didn't want to forget in your weekly Kiwi. Like it was just like a way to if there's something you wanted to tell the company, you didn't have to send email to 30 people. And interrupt them and give them a useless email, just to say uh-huh. you know there's there's some new soybeans in the fridge, and uh, it was also a way to say hey I just got this thing working that you might forgot forget on your weekly Kiwi status report uh, on the weekly Kiwi, and um, but it sort of also turned into kind of a chat room where random people post sort of random links to humorous websites showing pictures of cats doing things, uh, dreaming about cheeseburgers and. And so on, and um, that's a little bit less useful. Wait, there's pictures of cats somewhere. You know, people on the internet. Apparently, on the internet, <laughs> there are cats. It's like words that make it funny. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Oh, okay. I'm gonna look into that. Let's see. Check, uh, check out. Uh, you gotta. You have to. Uh, you have to spell everything wrong, or you'll never find it. <laughs> um, so you guys run. So in addition to, does every yeah. team do daily stand-up meetings, or just that one? No, team? that's just a co-pilot thing. Okay. I think. And then this Laconica, this internal Twitter thing, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, that makes sense because, you know, normally I'm a fan of, you know, doing things in as public a way as possible. Obviously, you are too. I mean, you're a master of it. Mm-hmm. But I agree that sometimes for internal stuff, that doesn't really work. Like, you can't really make some things public that <laughs> right, right. would just be A, too much detail, and B, weird, right? So I can understand. Um, and the other thing that might be interesting there is, with Twitter, there's a little bit of a desire to, to perform, <laughs> like because you're performing for a public audience. Mm-hmm. Like you feel like you have to actually perform a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe that's just me, <laughs> uh, but well, you, you have to be careful yeah. what you put up there. Whereas on an internal one, you, the bar is not quite as high. Like you just put up some mundane thing that happened, and you wouldn't worry about it too much. You wouldn't say, "Oh, this is really interesting to everybody." It doesn't have to be. It just has to be interesting within Fog Creek. So. I think yeah. that makes sense. I mean, are you seeing lots of use of the Laconica? Well, like, let's, I'll tell you what's going on there. I mean, there's a lo- there's about 18 things in just the last three hours. Uh, like, um, uh, there's a bunch of people talking about that thing that you just mentioned uh, with the uh, the halting problem that somebody posted right. to the coder, you know, the, the rent-a-coder site. Right. Um, so there, there was a bunch of people pointing to that. There's uh, Jillian is announcing that there will be no Waffle Wednesday tomorrow, which I'm really disappointed about. What? No waffles. Yeah. That ain't right. We usually have Waffle Wednesday, the last Wednesday of the month. Maybe it's just some kind of a Thanksgiving issue. And then there's... Um, I, wait, no, no, no. I, I blame the economy, Joel. Let's blame the economy. That's what we do here. <laughs> We're cutting back. It's all about cutting the economy. The economy is so bad, you can't have waffles now. Oh, my God. Remind me to take a question about the economy next. That'll be a good, good, good segue. There's somebody asking for a mini USB cable. There's somebody uh, um, answering that person. There's somebody uh, um, bragging about a new feature that they just finished implementing. Oh, nice. And um, that kind of stuff. Well, that's interesting. I never really thought about the idea of running an internal Twitter. I mean, you know, I'm a huge Twitter fan. I use it for all kinds of things, and it's been very useful. But 
I think that could scale down to a company. I think that makes sense. That's very uh, clever and smart. Yeah, sometimes cool. in some ways it feels like a company chat room, except that you don't really reply that that often. You know, it's not like you know back and forth, right. and back and forth, and back and forth. It's just sort of a way to ask a question. You know, it won't interrupt people. You know, it won't sit in their inboxes forever, demanding a reply. Yes. That makes sense. And then, you know, the funny thing is, is if you become internet famous enough, like if you're Guy Kawasaki, you can do stuff like post on Twitter, I need a USB cable. And like someone will come wherever you are in the world and give you this thing that you wanted, which is hilarious. There, see, the thing is, I think that the people like Guy Kawasaki, or I don't know who it is, that are promoting Twitter, and you, actually, that are saying, what? oh, Twitter is great. Are, I like it. I, I, I know. Let me finish the sentence. All right, all right. I think that you guys are using Twitter differently than 99.99% of Twitter users because you're celebrities and most people are not. And so I don't know how many people are following you on Twitter, but it's probably more. You're probably like in the top 20. No, no, no. I'm not in the top 20, but you're right. 25. I mean, the phenomenon is right. The top percent. You're in the top percent. Well, that's true of a broad things, a broad set of things that you do on the web. Like if you were on Facebook, for example, and you're Joel Spolsky, so your use of Facebook is going to be different than anonymous programmer guy. I know. I wish I could have too. And uh, uh, so I I think that's just a normal progression. So, but I think you're right. I have to be careful when I talk about like why Twitter works for me. Like I can post a question and get an answer, but if nobody's following you, if you're a new Twitter user, you can't. Yeah. Ask these grandiose questions. So all the you people, all the uh, Kevin Roses of the world and, and Leo Laporte's all bragging about how Twitter is great and whatever, you know, you're, you're, see, you're seeing it from a very, very different perspective than regular users. But I do think there's spillover because I, I will, for example, like if somebody asks me a question on Twitter, like a direct response, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't have to be someone famous or somebody I know. If they ask a good question or they say something interesting, I will respond to it. So. And I know a long time ago I brought up the analogy, and I think it still holds. It's like being at a dinner party. So, yeah, you're at a dinner party with Guy Kawasaki. So there's going to be a crowd of people around Guy, Guy Kawasaki. But that doesn't mean you couldn't strike up a conversation with either Guy Kawasaki or someone that's talking to Guy Kawasaki. But it's about just sort of – Guy network. Kawasaki. But, what's that? You could be like, hey, so enough about me. What do you think about Guy Kawasaki? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I, I think it does have advantages for I think anyone if if you start becoming a part of the conversation, it's kind of cool. But you're, you're right; uh, I think both both are correct. Uh, let's take another question. We sort of talked about the Waffle Wednesday um, scaling back here at Fog Creek, right? Actually, you know, but all all we really did is push it until after the week after Thanksgiving. So I don't really know if that's such a big cutback. There will probably be two Waffle Wednesdays in December. Maybe not. I don't know what's going to happen. When, what day is Christmas? Uh, December 25th, right? I have no idea. Let's take another question. Hi, Joel and Jeff. This is Matthew Gooden from Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I have a question about management in Lean Economic Times. Uh, do you favor uh, one way of going after people who are perhaps getting cut from other companies at a time when they need to downsize, when they need to uh, trim costs wherever they can? Uh, do you find it more effective to try to maintain your own people at the expense of any fringe benefits you might provide. Uh, it'd just be educational to find out from the perspective of the smart people who get things done and also from the perspective of thinking that people that you might have to let go have this opportunity to go and start their own businesses during these down times. Thanks very much. That was one of those um, questions in which we have to talk about the headlines and all the cutbacks and so on and so forth. Well, let's let's make it very specific. So I know okay. we had talked about this, and you know it's not 
cool to talk about actual numbers and stuff, but um, basically you guys are doing fine so far, I mean, as far as the economic downturn, but let's play what if. Like, okay, so what if your revenue got cut, <laughs> oh cut in half? Like, <laughs> what... <laughs> Like and it stayed that way for a long period of time. Like, what would you do? How how do you? I know it sucks. Well, okay, all, it the sucks. Waffle Wednesdays would just be completely cut out. Yeah. So, what's your strategy for for dealing with that? Like over the long term, like how would you? I mean, eventually it comes down to personnel, right? What's the number one expense? It's like paying people. Although you have awesome people that do awesome work, but yeah, if you don't have the money to pay them, like how? What's the strategy there? What would be the worst case scenario? Um, I don't know. <sighs> Well, you know, we do, we do sort of know. Um, one, th- one thing which I, I'm sure is going on out there, you're hearing about a lot of, like, layoffs, and I won't name names, but a lot of companies that are laying off 10% or 20%, especially in the startup community where their VCs have told them you have to, you have to lay people off. And, you know, I, I, you have, for example, Valleywag was shut down. And uh, honestly, I don't think that, that the economy has anything to do with that, although there is an economy issue right now. I think that it's a really convenient excuse to get rid of the 10% of the people that you have that you wish you could, you could fire, but you felt bad about it. I mean, people really feel bad about firing and, and laying off people that are, that are not working at a hundred percent of their potential or a hundred percent of the potential of somebody that could fill that job. And, uh, in good times, those people just get to keep their jobs, even if they're not doing the best possible work. And that's fine, and and uh, you know that's okay. Um, when a recession comes along, or or some kind of there's a lot of news, I think an awful lot of business people use that as an excuse to sort of quote unquote clear away the deadwood. And they say, well, you know, very very hard economic times. So I'm afraid we're going to have to cut 10% of you, and um, and they always do it. You know, for some reason, the people that are cut. You know, people are depressed, but the company continues and continues to earn about the same amount of money as they did before. And suddenly you realize that those 10% were the 10% that weren't really adding that much value to the bottom line. So I'm right. not saying anything specific about Falkery because we have excellent people here. Uh, and that's right. why yeah, we're I don't think you guys have that kind of buffer. I think yeah. that's an expensive buffer, right? That's like <laughs> – Yeah. Uh, if you have it, great. But uh, yeah, I don't think you guys have that. Well, th- there's there's all kinds of you – know, look, I'm, I'm, the, the – any work, any developer, I don't want to put this in terms I mean, of Valkyrie because it's not true, but and it doesn't really apply to our situation But um, because we really are making so much more money than we're spending that we're not even close um, right. to having a problem. But uh, if a software company did have a problem, and a typical software company like Valkyrie, which is, let's say, you're breaking even, you're um, – uh, you have a bunch of developers, and you have some tech support, you have some sales, uh, you're paying for an office, and that's about it. That's kind of that's kind of what your life is like. And um, you know, maybe you're doing a little advertising, but none of that adds up to anything. It's really the office and the uh, the people. Okay. And uh, um, if you're just breaking even and your sales go down by twenty percent, then you're going to have to cut twenty percent. There's just no two ways about it. Um, so. Uh, one way to do that is, uh, you know, you have developers who are working on a version of software that your customers don't have. And uh, I hate to say this, but that's optional. That's It's important for the future, and that's an investment. But if you don't have the money to invest, then you can't invest, you can't invest it. You know, I'd love to be able to take an extra million dollars right now and put it into some of these really, really underpriced uh, securities that are available on the market because of the crash. But uh, you know, nobody has the extra million dollars lying around to do that. Um, so similarly, um, you know, if, if, if you're a software company and you're not breaking even 
you don't have any extra source of cash, um, all that research and development that you're doing is optional. Right. Um, would you would you classify the next version as research and development? That's just normal progression of your product line. I know, but if That's we like stop if we stop if we stop developing that, it wouldn't affect our sales today. It would eventually, but in the short term, it wouldn't. So you would just postpone it. It wouldn't be like a permanent. Oh, we're never going to have the next version of Fogbugs. Right. Be, well, we're just going to push it back like a year or something. Because you're right. I mean, look at we're so, we're, look so, at my, we're so far from doing that that it's not even relevant. But honestly, right. if if our if our sales went down ninety percent. Then you know the only contract I really have is to pay the rent here, and I can actually mm-hmm. kind of sublet a large part of their our cool office space, and uh, that other than that, I mean, there's really, you know, we, we have to have some support. We have to have some, you know, there was a time in the early days when Fog Creek, we started out with four people. It was really Mike, Michael and I founded it, and we hired two people right away, and they were doing some consulting work. And when the consulting gigs went away, we just had to lay off two people, and it was just me and Michael. And that everything slowed down dramatically, but uh, we we survived. So by the time it got so dire that you were letting people go, I mean it would be that would be the end, pretty much. I mean, <laughs> that's our, what I'm hearing. Yeah, our revenue had gone. I mean, it, it, it's sort of hard to tell because it was just like the first few months, which kind of weird. We had like a few big consulting gigs that comfortably paid for several people, um, right. but then those just disappeared. 100 percent of those disappeared, and all we had left was the. Fogbugs 1.0 revenues, which were minuscule, right? Yeah, you know, five thousand to ten thousand a month, um, and uh, so we really had to cut back to just just the two of us uh, back then. Well, it's your extravagant waffle budgets, I think, is the problem. <laughs> Those uh, I don't even know who pays for the waffles. Um, you know that stuff doesn't add up to a hell of beans. All, all the uh, it, you know, yeah. even even the office space. Somebody um, somebody sent me an email. Uh, asking, you know, how do you justify all that beautiful office space at Fog Creek? And, wait, wait, wait. You're uh, answering an email question? Uh, no, no. This was a, per- a private email question. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, although if somebody were to call in with audio, that would be awesome to ask me the question. It's too late. Um, they, yeah, how do you justify? Uh, and the truth is, you know, I don't have to justify anything to anybody. So, you know, F you. <laughs> it's like, ooh, I, don't have any, I don't have any investors, you know, as long as me well, and Michael want to do something. Okay, well, having, we been, okay, having been to the Fog Creek office and yeah. having worked in other very cool offices, I mean, it's, it's just worth it. I mean, if, if you're not smart enough to understand why it's worth it, then you just don't right. get it. I mean, I'm sorry, but that's just kind of how it is. Well, I have, a, I, have a, I have a glib answer that I give people, or, or a slightly less glib answer. Number one, uh, it's a recruiting tool. And if you can get those great Ten fur programmers, the programmers that are ten times better than everybody else, because you have the nicer office than the guy down the hallway. Uh, it's worth it. That pays for itself, and with one great programmer. Uh, well, too, the the other thing that's weird about the question is like, well, why do you live in a nice house? Why not just live in a total dump? Right. Well, I mean, yeah, it's just I don't even get the logic there. Yeah, like, you could save so much money living in a, <laughs> in a just dump. move into like a shipping container. Why <laughs> even have walls? It's stupid. What a waste of money. It's like, well, you just kind of scratch your head and go, well, I, I don't know. Maybe you should do that. Well, right? think about <laughs> think about where this question is coming from. Obviously, is somebody who has outside investors, and it, this, the outside investors are putting pressure on them to appear or to be frugal. And office space feels like an extravagance. Um, so the, the second thing I want to say, uh, okay, so the, first of all, there's a recruiting tool. Second of all, there's the added productivity of having developers in uh, private offices with doors that close. And that's a well-established fact. And um, <laughs> merely because I say it is. <laughs> and uh, number three uh, is uh, is that it's not that much money. And um, um, a, 
most companies spend about 5% of their annual revenue on their office space. And that works. that's pretty close for a software company, 5% of your revenue for office space. It's a pretty reasonable, uh, pretty reasonable number. And the difference between the spectacular office space and the cramming them into cubicles is a question of whether you know, it's 4% versus 6% of your revenue. Right. And you better have margins that are bigger than that as a software company. You're, you're not Amazon.com. You're not, you're not a retailer with razor-thin margins. You're not uh, you know, Target or Walmart trying to be frugal. You're not Southwest Airlines where every, you know, showing that every penny counts is, is really important. Uh, you're a software company, and you kind of have to have big, big margins. And, and every additional copy of software that you sell costs you zero extra. So um, uh, it, it really shouldn't be that that big a, a deal on your on your on your bottom line to have nice office space. Yeah, I agree. Hey, speaking of which, when are you going to have? When do you think the photos of your space will go up? Um, I've been taking them slowly. Uh, I can put them up, uh, you know, uh, soon. Oh, soon. Okay, cool. Well, I'm, <laughs> obviously, you'll have a blog post about that. I was just curious about yeah. the timeline. Uh, what am I waiting for? There was one picture. Oh, yeah, I'm trying to get pictures of like people having lunch and people at the coffee bar right. and like just people doing stuff. Yes. And that's kind of hard to, like, get. You need some Kodachrome moments. Right. A lot Those of the pictures I have are, are very uh, architectural, like like pictures of the architecture. And I think people want to see, like, you know, the people kind of. Human beings. Overrated. Don't need them. Just the space. <laughs> no, I, I get that. No, that's totally cool. Uh-huh. Um, so do we want to go to uh, picking questions in Stack Overflow? I have one. Okay, yeah. Uh, what's yours? Okay, so one that I uh, put in my favorites recently is, uh, and this comes up every now and then, it's about parameterization of SQL and SQL injection. Oh, yeah. So just a brief background for people who don't know. So the naive way to build SQL is to just plop it in a string Mm -hmm. and start concatenating strings together, right? Select star from table where name equals, quote, Joe, unquote. Yeah. Um, and one problem with this, and it's fairly widely known now, I would say, by most competent programmers, is like you shouldn't really do that because the problem with that is that name field is probably coming from a user input field, mm-hmm. right? Where a user says, oh, I want to search for a user's name, Joe. So they type Joe and they press enter. Well, the problem is when the user types, uh, quote, dash, dash, drop table users, right? Right. <laughs> and, and XKCD has that very famous cartoon, the little Bobby tables guy. <laughs> yeah. She named her son, quote, dash, dash, drop, table. <laughs> Little Bobby tables, yeah. So it's fairly well understood, but one subtlety that comes up is, so the answer to this usually is parameterization, which is uh, basically a layer that most database libraries have that lets you say, okay, where name equals parameter, and parameter is a string. And, and then the database library level actually handles the escaping of that string for you mm-hmm. to make sure that nothing, you know, no command goes in where it should be just a string. There's actually, um, um, yeah, and, and and sometimes actually, uh, like in the case of Microsoft SQL Server, at least, uh, you get some real benefits, uh, performance benefits from doing that because uh, instead of executing different queries every time, the parameter, the presence of the parameter in the query allows the, the optimizer to say, oh, wait a minute, this is the same query, just with different parameters. And so it'll use a previously made query optimization plan Right. And let me tell you, this is really, really true. I mean, I intuitively knew this, but I was kind of 
I'm kind of a skeptic when it comes to a lot of stuff. It's like, oh, how much difference can it make? But on Stack Overflow, because we have such a high volume of queries, mm-hmm. it makes a huge okay. – I was really shocked, actually, how big the difference is. So, yeah, if you have a high-volume site, you want to parameterize the crap. Forget SQL injection. You want to do it for performance reasons alone <laughs> because it, it makes the query cache much more efficient <laughs> when it doesn't have to put all these thousands of copies of the same exact query. Now – I sometimes get in trouble with this, but I, I kind of feel like that's true. But I feel like the database should be smarter about this. Like, if the only thing that's changing is that string, mm-hmm. I don't know. I just feel like it, the query cache should be able to figure that out and say, okay, these thousand queries that I'm getting over and over, the only thing that's different is the string. So I'm just going to internally, anytime I see that, I'm just going to treat it as the same exact thing. Well, it can't, uh, uh, it can't really do that without parsing. And that, that's what it's trying to save time doing, lexing and parsing of the, of the query and then building a query plan. Because right now, what it looks like is it just does um, a, a very fast string compare on the entire query as is to see if it's in the cache, and that's True. just comparing two strings. Whereas to compare two strings, but you know, but if things Figure are within out. a quote or within yep. a, would, would yeah. actually require lexing and parsing, and that could be um, that could take on the order of a hundred times more time. So that it would it would be uh, prohibitive to check if something was in the cache even. If you had to do that lexing and parsing every that, time. That's true. At the very least, it ends up being a performance optimization. And, and on Stack Overflow, again, we have such volume that, I mean, we we really need to do that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, every little bit helps. Um, whereas if you have a site that only 10 people are ever going to, I don't think it would really matter too much which way you went. Uh, but, yeah, I agree with that totally. What, and then you know, another what, really, what really used to frustrate the, the heck out of me was that, Almost any beginning programming for the web book that you took off the shelf, you know, like beginning PHP, beginning whatever, um, every single example in that book would just be concatenating up SQL strings like wild. It would just be every single example was a security bug. And even the better books would just be like, don't actually do this because this is a security bug, but I'm just doing it to show you the clean way to do it. Right. Really. Yeah, I I totally. I, I, there's tons of examples. You're absolutely Millions right. Of Particularly, we're taught the wrong way to program. Yeah. Now, one another subtlety that comes up here is even after you're fully parameterized, I kept getting people that would tell me, you know, I, I felt like okay, once you parameterize, you don't have to worry too much about injection. I mean, maybe there's some weird edge condition, but people kept coming up on the comments because I've talked about this a couple times historically throughout the years, and they would say, you know what. Uh, parameterization's not enough. There can still be injection on parameterization. And I really couldn't figure this out. I was like, well, how could they really do that? How could you get injection on parameterized uh, SQL? And finally, I did a bunch of research, and, and what I figured out was it's called latent SQL injection. And it's a little weird in that you end up writing what you consider to be some safe fragment of SQL to the, to the database somehow. It, it, again, it's kind of an oddball oh. condition. I think this might be one of those things okay. you talked about where programmers are super anal, and they're yeah. like, oh, well, you can still inject. I'm like, well, really? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but somehow it gets written to the database as is, and then later the application picks up that safe SQL string. Like it thinks it's it, safe because it's from the database. Yeah, and it's not. And right? it's not safe because there's a bug somewhere where somebody else yeah, has well, another way to change it. Well, it was parameterized, but it got inserted as is. You know, right. I still am not totally 100% convinced this is a realistic scenario that could actually happen. Uh, but that's when you read about it, it's latent SQL injection. So when people say that, that's, that's what they're saying. Um, but it, it, in general, once you parameterize, you've conquered, I mean, gosh, 95% of What's the What's kind of frustrating problem. is just how hard it is to parameterize, especially in some languages like, you know, go back to, uh, um, I'll use an example that I know, VBScript. Uh, 
to create a SQL string, I guess it's the, you got to create a new command. And then to put in the parameters, what you do is you put little question marks in your SQL source code. Uh, you know, in your SQL statement, you put little question marks. And then you have to run this ghastly function, which is like command.parameters.add, command.parameters.new, something, some, some complicated way where you actually c- construct a parameter and then add it to the command. And it mm-hmm. gets put in. And you just get this really, really bulky and messy code. Uh, and partially that's a limitation of uh, the, the language, which doesn't give you a nice way uh, to do that. Um, like, for example, variable parameters would even solve that problem. You know, variable length parameter lists uh, to a function. And then you could just call a function and give it a whole bunch of parameters, and it would stuff them all in. Uh, <clears throat> sort of like printf. But... Uh, right. Like that's a limitation of the language, but but then it's for some reason the the class library designers never really kind of imagined, never really think very very hard about what the most common things are that you're doing and try to really make them optimal. Mm-hmm. It's like it took me ten minutes to come up with a couple of utility functions that you could use in VB Script that would construct SQL statements and then stuff parameters into them in a nice, clean, elegant, and simple way, and. Um, it's just, uh, um, yeah. It, it's never, you know, it's weird. No, whatever, whatever uh, programming language combination slash uh, database access library you're using, whether it's mm-hmm. you know C sharp with ADO.net or or just plain old old fashioned VB script or VB or PHP with whatever it is they use or Ruby and Active Record or whatever. There's always four things that you're trying to do, right? It's this classic crud things. And um, you, you almost want to, you, you read these gigantic books explaining all the 8 million things you can do, and you almost want to make yourself a cheat sheet. Okay, here's how I do a select where I just need one value, like a scalar select, right? I just need one value back. Here's how I do a select where I need a single row back. Here's how I do a select where I need a bunch of rows. Here's how I do an insert, and here's how I do a delete. That's it. Here's how I do an update. And if you just know how to do those four things with your class library, that's pretty much all you're going to have to do 95% of the time. And right. sometimes it's kind of shocking how, how, how developers or, 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 sorry, the designers of these frameworks give you this beautiful framework for accessing the database. And those four things, the simplest way you can possibly get to code is still verbose and ugly and requires a lot of typing. Rant over. Right. No, that's it's, it's a completely <laughs> valid point. Um, the other thing that comes up, and I, I don't know why people do this, but they write stored procs that actually execute SQL internally. Like basically, I'm I'm just not a proc fan. I haven't been historically, and really never will be. It's like to me, it's like database assembly language. It's like when you need it, you know when you need it, and most of the time you don't. Um, but if you write a proc that takes a parameter and just you know concatenates up a string, I mean that's really no different than doing it in code. There's a couple of little cases. Uh, I'll give you some examples where you just can't. You want to parameterize something. And they just don't let you because of limitations in SQL. So like SQL Server 2005, you can't parameterize the, uh, the number after the top. So you say select top 100, select top 20. And you want that number oh, to be parameterized? I think you can in 2008, but not in 2005. Or, well, also the in clause. I know there's a place in yeah. Stack Overflow where we use an in clause. And yeah. I can't figure out a way to parameterize that at all. Oh, I'll show you how to do that. You, you do, it, you do it by, no. You do it by making a string, and then you parameterize based on is this found in this string. You put little little bars around. But you use little bars to separate each of the elements to make oh, a cool. string. Yeah, well, um, send that to me. I would like to parameterize that one. 
the uh, um, or let's say you want to parameterize the sort order, like you know different users you want to sort by different columns based on the user's sort preference. Um, that that's one of those things that's really really like it's not really possible. Um, and there's no reason that shouldn't be possible. Why, why couldn't a wait, parameter wait, wait. be a column name? Oh, I see what you're saying. The field that you're sorting by could yeah. be technically a parameter. Like I might want no. to sort by date and I might want to sort by relevance. And, and then I want to remember that and store that. And later when I do that query, I want to see, is yeah. this user sorting by date or by relevance? And are they sorting up or down? And I want to change the you know order by. Right. Um, you can parameterize a lot of the where clauses because you can always have a where clause that includes every possible thing that you might ever filter on uh, guarded based on some other parameter. So it is actually possible to completely parameterize everything about the where operation mm-hmm. if, you're, if you know your Boolean logic. Right. Yeah, there's definitely edge conditions where parameterization becomes awkward and or impossible. So. Right. Did uh, you have hmm. any questions that you wanted to... Uh, yeah, let me let's so, well, let's see. Let me click on my little favorites uh, link here, and let's see if I can come up with something uh, interesting. Uh, oh, here's one. How do you? This is what are these? What are these sorted by? Favorites. Uh, the last date that somebody edited something in them. So then, okay. anything with newer content floats to the top on your favorites. Uh, here's a good one. How do you pull yourself out of a programming slump? Define slump. Quote, and I'm reading from uh, Dave K. I'm having a hard time working up the level of passion I used to have for programming. Instead of wanting to stay up late figuring out a problem, I'd rather just go to bed. <laughs> I have That's a hard kind time of a broad, work. broad characterization. I really do love programming and would be seriously depressed if I somehow lost my spark. I think, I think this, this is an extremely common problem. Extremely. Okay. Because, I mean, a lot of programmers just give up after about eight years. And go really? into some other field or management. Really, or, eight yeah. years is like there's like a seven year itch or something. I don't know what it is. I I just made that number up, but but yeah, um, yeah. Something's huh. going ringy dingy in my pocket. Interesting. I, I you know I have not really found that to be true. I find that the people that are drawn to it that are really like totally into it, like you can't make them stop doing it. They just it's in their blood. They just love it. They seemingly will do it forever. I I really haven't met anyone that I feel like has burned out or. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe that's just a. I haven't had enough experience. Um, really? I don't want to sound dismissive. Are I you just don't have you never experience. had like you never had like a period where you'd come in and you'd have to write a bunch of code and you'd just be like reading the internet all day and then you'd go home and you'd be feeling sad that you never wrote any code. Well, usually when that happens is because somebody's made you work on a project that sucks. Oh. I mean, certainly I've had that experience, but I don't think it's it's not intrinsic. It's not like me that's the problem. You know, it's the project that I'm on. Yeah. I mean, do you think it's more of an external thing? I mean, well, if it's let me ask you this question. How many 53-year-old programmers do you know versus 23-year-old That's true. I, that's very true. I mean, I, I don't know many extremely – no, I don't want to say extremely old. I don't know many <laughs> programmers of, of age 50 or older. That's true. But eventually, I mean, I'm not a young chicken. I mean, I'm almost 40, so I guess it happens. I mean, do you know programmers that have like burned out literally? Like they just can't stand it anymore, and they used to totally love it. Heap loads, most of them. Really? Yeah. Really? Wow. Yeah. By the time they're fifty, I I think it's I think it's actually kind of rare to find uh, programmers that 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 have been working that have been programming for twenty five or thirty years. 
Well, let me let me put a caveat 15. in there. I don't mean like hardcore. Like I don't consider what I do by any stretch of the imagination. Probably never uh, anything I've ever written has been quote unquote hardcore programming. I mean, I've solved some interesting problems, but I don't know. Over time, you know, I've done the blogging thing, and I've I've probably turned more to the writing about programming. That the volume of my writing about programming has massively dwarfed the volume of my actual code. Right. Right. Um, so maybe that's my answer is that I guess I just I end up talking more about it and I still write code but I don't write you know volumes of it. Yeah. I, I think that there's something about uh there's something kind of weird which is like I I don't even know the answer to the question of uh, there's another phenomenon that happens to people kind of at all ages which um uh what was that article that I wrote about was that in Fire and Motion that I wrote about that like some days you just can't get the motivation necessary. I think there's an article called Fire and Motion on my website. About no, Fire Emotion is one one, a great article. I don't know if it covers that particular topic, but it's a great one. Um, and uh, I think that's what it is. I don't know. There's a couple I am a of sucker. Uh, I'm a sucker for your war stories. I love those. <laughs> uh, the, it's a shame. That's going to be like – that's going to be – I'm trying not to, not to be the person with a whole bunch of clever stories about how programming is a war. <laughs> or it's, just like, it's just like the Israeli army at peacetime. <laughs> I kind of want you to go back into the Israeli army. I feel Thanks. like there's been a decline since you left. I want you to go back in now and um, have more stories. Um, um, no. Wait, I had an answer. Oh, uh, you know, a lot of people get into these temporary slumps that they eventually get out of. And I'm just talking about, like, there was a whole week where I just could not get started in coding, and I just spent the whole time reading the internets and stuff like that. Um, sometimes that happens just because of, like, burnout, just because you just you just got off of a... You know, uh, in, in Peopleware, they sort of say that you're, you're is it Peopleware that you, or, and um, the mythical, um, sorry, the Death March, the Death March books by Ed Yorden, both talk about this idea that, yeah, you can make programmers work 80-hour weeks, and they will get done twice as much as they made, as they did in their 40-hour weeks, but you're incurring debt, and you're going to pay back that debt, you know, in triple, in terms of just sort of burnout and that kind of stuff. So you can definitely, if you want to spend a week, if you, there's really a deadline, you want to make everybody work for 80 hours and get that thing done, that's fine. But the week after that, you're going to get nothing done. I, I definitely agree with that. There's this, some sort of internal balance scale. Yeah. <laughs> it's like when you're working 50, 60, 70 hours a week. It, the time definitely comes, you get it back. It's, it's weird how good people are at that. Mm-hmm. At least I am. <laughs> no, they'll, take, they'll take it out on you somehow. I'll yeah, back, they'll get it back from you. Um, yeah. The uh, the other thing that, uh, that that that's true is that you know think about when you're really productive in programming, you're in the zone, you're in you're in flow. You're like time. You're not aware of time passing. That's the best way to describe it. You're just cranking away, and great stuff right. is getting done, and it doesn't seem like any time is passing. And lo and behold, suddenly you've just completed a huge amount of work. And I think uh, most of the good programmers that I know, or many many good programmers I know, will tell me that you know this is something that happens to them once or twice a week for a few hours, and in those few hours, that's when they get all their work done for the week. Uh, there there are different personalities programmers. There are programmers that just crank away happily and endlessly and their programmers to get things done in very very productive spurts and then they have these periods of time where they're just kind of recovering where their brain is in recovery mode so the one thing about flow is uh and this is um entirely attributed to Peopleware, uh the great book by lister and demarco is that we don't really know how to get people uh into flow uh, like it's not it's not clear how you would take somebody who's not in flow and get them in that in that mode of concentration and writing a lot of code. Um, but 
we certainly know how to knock them out of it. There's lots and lots of ways you can interrupt flow and get somebody out of flow. And well, uh, wait, wait, know. wait. Let me interrupt just briefly because we talked about flow last week. That was the question you picked last week. So can you draw <gasps> a distinction? Oh. Well, that's okay. I mean, we can talk about it either way, but I'm just curious, like, where does the line end? So I agree with what you're saying, but I'm, I guess I'm getting, what I'm getting at is how do you deal with this burnout factor? Like, what's the solution? Is it all about the history? Like, don't get in a position where you get burned out? Like, don't work 50-hour weeks willingly for oh. some crazy person? Uh, no, or okay. Yeah, you're right. How do you fix it after the fact? How do you fix it after the fact? Uh, I, I, there's a couple of there's a couple of ways to do it. One is a lot of times uh, it's this Merlin man who says that you're like envisioning the thing being done. And what you really need to do is envision the working on the thing. I see. That doesn't make any sense. I shouldn't. Well, no, no, no. That's, I, I had a blog post kind of like that. It was called moving the block, which is like, okay, you're building a pyramid. Don't think I'm going to build a pyramid. Yeah. Think I'm going to move this block yes. 10 feet. To- okay. Why don't you elaborate on that? Because that's what I wanted to say. Well, that, that's really the whole concept. It's oh. like, <laughs> think about the one block that you're moving. Don't think about anything else. Don't think, oh my God, giant pyramid. Oh my God, where right. am I going to get all these blocks from? How am I going to do this? Just think, how am I going to get this block from this point to this point today? Like 10 feet, not even like a mile, just 10 feet, 10 feet yeah. closer to the pyramid. And you just keep doing that day after day after day, right? And that's how you build a pyramid. You don't yeah. have this grandiose plan. You just move blocks a tiny amount every exactly. single day. If you, and, can take, if you can take some little feature that sounds like a lot of fun, you know you're going to need it. Like oh I'm gonna have the the I'm I'm doing this whole movement moving files left right uploading downloading converting blah 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 feature but I'm just gonna right. get that file upload component to work right uh, I know I'm gonna need it it sounds fun and then I can feel like hey I'm just gonna let me just see if I can get the file upload to work you know I still don't I'm not entirely sure maybe it's just the question is not lack sufficient detail but I feel like you're truly burned out like would you have to like do it in a different language would you have to do it like with singing and dancing I mean like I don't know I mean I, I think well I think there's some truth there because let's say you're a C++ programmer and you're doing everything in C++ and maybe your worldview is just constrained by what's possible in C++ right like the whole people always talk about when they use Ruby or Python and these other dynamic languages like oh it totally changed the way I looked at programming right because you see further than you could see before maybe. in terms of it yeah. gives you different yeah. better tools that give you different better solutions it's like at a certain point in a language, you've kind of done all the mainstream stuff you're going to do with it, right? I mean, you've used all the basic data constructs, all the basic keywords. I mean, there's always new stuff, but like, I don't know. It's like learning a different language, right? Like, a different, you know, spoken language. You just maybe think a little bit differently based on that. So, uh, I don't know. Maybe that's another approach is like, just learn a different language. Find like something, something, yeah, find something altogether different to work on. It may be, uh, you know, there may be uh, other reasons. It may be that the pyramid that you're looking at may be just a lack of a spec or a lack of design, and so you feel like it's overwhelming because you haven't broken it down and figured out what you're going to do. Um, I would really urge people like not to blame themselves. I know that sounds self-serving, but I really think it's true. I think most people, particularly programmers, are very intrinsically motivated, right? Like, we're highly driven to do the things that we do. Mm-hmm. So when you wake up in the morning, you're like, God, I don't even want to go to work anymore. I don't work on this anymore. It's, it, I would say, seriously, it's probably not you. I mean, really look at the external things in your mm-hmm. job, in your life first mm-hmm. uh, before blaming yourself, right? Yeah. I, mean, I don't know. Doubt. Maybe it is your when fault. Doubt. Maybe, maybe you suck. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's always possible. You can't rule it out, but yeah, there's uh, a lot of external. When in doubt, try more coffee. Yes. Caffeine is always a good thing. So we should probably close it up here. Let's close it up with a turkey for, uh, for Turkey Day coming up on Thursday. This is the Turkey Day edition of Stack Overflow, episode 31. Right. I'm your host, and so is Jeff. 
or your host. Uh, what do we What do we say at the end of the show? Why don't you do the end of the show? I'm sick of it. I've forgotten all the things to say. <laughs> so we have a telephone number that people can call. I'll start looking that up while you uh, yeah, look while that you up. Say everything else. <laughs> so if you want to ask us a question, we're trying to get better about answering user questions. We do appreciate user questions, so please send them in, particularly those thoughtful ones that are going to make me argue with Joel and make can, one of us um, look, yep. look bad. Because people seem to enjoy that. Yeah, something uh, something where one of us looks like an idiot, and it's preferably Jeff. And the phone number is 646-826-3879. Or you can uh, record like an MP3 file or an Og Vorbis file. And those actually work the best, a lot of them, um, just because they sound great. Uh, you record those, and you send it to a podcast at stackoverflow.com. And then don't forget to mention your name when you do the recording so I can cite you properly. Oh, yeah. Uh, we say, also- say your name and spell it if it's weird, because otherwise we're going to just spell it wrong when we write it down. If you're just like, yeah. oh, my name is Yes. We're not going to have really to simple names. Right. If you could have a simple name like A or B, that would be <laughs> ideal. Hi, I'm AB from Calgary, and I have this question. That would be awesome. A, so, a, a from Calgary would be EH, right? Oh, we suck at doing this trail out. This is way too long. So <laughs> we also have a wiki for people who are hearing impaired or otherwise don't want to listen to our ramblings. <laughs> Can and actually a we have a turkey, <laughs> and we have Sorry, turkey sounds. Turkey so sounds. that's the wiki is hosted at uh, Fogbugs, and that's linked in the show notes. So if you want to help out your fellow non-listeners, please go to the wiki and help us. You can just go to the, the show to notes. Are always at blog.stackoverflow.com, and you can see the latest week's show notes. And at the bottom, there'll be a link to the wiki page uh, where you can uh, edit, provide transcripts, and um, that's very helpful to those yeah. people that don't have time to sit and listen to an hour of rambling, but want to hear all the details that's right all right see you next week see ya you've been listening to stack overflow with jeff atwood and joel spolsky the conversations network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is... Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.